attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast, the official podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. This is episode 69, where we'll be taking you back to Pleasure Island, our final number here, final part three, and we're going to be talking about... uh, a comedy Warehouse, as well as the Adventures Club. So, congolouche to everybody out there. I know a lot of people are waiting for this. But sitting in with me tonight uh, from the Berg in Florida is Mr. Hal Bowers. How are you doing tonight, Hal? Aloha. I am doing well. Our Tampa Bay Lightning just won their second Stanley Cup in a row. Yeah. Well done, yeah. gentlemen. Congratulations. And Todd, you may have spoke too soon because, of course, there's there's going to be a part four of Pleasure Island because oh, while we're covering uh, the Adventures Club in the Comedy what Warehouse, what did you find? What did you well, find? Well, we we have to eventually talk about the decline and fall and what happened to Adventures Club after the '90s as a transition to the 2000s. But we'll, you know, it burned down. Nothing happened. Yeah, we'll put that it's off all over for another time. Okay, all right, we'll move that into the 2024 range. There we go. Something like that. Fair enough. All right. Uh, with that, also with me, as always, is Mr. Brian P. Miles coming in from the vicinity of the brother city of brotherly love. Greetings and salutations. And, you know, so people understand, uh, we have to explain that a little bit. I'm fine with it being the city of brotherly love. Anybody from the metropolitan Philadelphia area, South Jersey, Delaware, Philly, yes, where you're from? Oh, I'm from Philadelphia. That's just, we're, we're from the Philadelphia region. Uh, we've learned that Florida is very different. You know, there's Tampa people and there's St. Pete people, and we've been misidentifying how for seven years right. now. So as yeah. being yeah. from Tampa. I have a plan, though. I have a plan to address that uh, each and every month. Uh, we'll be able to identify how's locale uh, in a different fashion. <laughs> okay. So tonight is the Berg, um, so, which is an official nickname of St. Petersburg. So. You know, Todd, the only reason it even matters to me is I get I'll mm. get – on Twitter, people will say, like, can you give me some recommendations for restaurants or bars in Tampa? And I can't because I'm not from Tampa. I don't know. Just invite them to St. Pete. Right. Then. Exactly. St. Pete. I, guys, if you need to know, want to know where to eat or drink in St. Pete, I got you covered. But when it comes to Tampa, I, I just don't feel like I have that expertise. So you just go to Burns. If you're in Tampa, go to Burns. Don't do go anywhere else. There yeah, you can't go. go wrong. There you go. We, get to, we ate with a great pizza place with you, too. That was fantastic. So. But uh, all right, so we will. How's looking at well, like? Well, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Trying to remember. I went to a gas station with him, an old gas station that was converted oh, to a restaurant. Oh, very nice. We had a nice dinner, and then we went to some ice cream dessert bar that specialized in pies. Unsurprisingly, oh, yes, that's right. uh, we had a yeah. nice dinner. You know, a nice time that night. And then we, we ate on that beach down there. How that like on the side of the road that like roadhouse that all of a sudden you go to the back of it. It's got a beautiful beach. We sat on and had dinner and that's right. family. It's a lot of fun. It's there's some some yeah. gems down there. It's a lovely yeah. place to be from. 
Well, we will and, come down to the visit. Berg soon. Yes, yeah. as is Philadelphia, you, as so. I've fed, it I've fed yeah. everybody who's come near here. So now nobody ever introduces me, but it's I'm okay if you say it's it's the Boston Coming area. To us I'm, from I'm, I'm cool up with that. North and uh, New England, Northeast, New England, and, you know, New England, New Hampshire. Yeah. yeah. It's what's I'm new. not far enough north to be down east. <laughs> you know, so, you know, it's a lot uh, better than the old Hampshire. Yes. It, it well, is. That's a it's West that. Wing reference. When, when uh, you know, President Bartlett in the West Wing was the governor of New Hampshire before he was before he was president. And there's one flashback episode where he's the governor and they're walking in to pitch him the new state's tourism slogan. It's what's new. Huh? New Hampshire. It's what's new. Thomas Hilton started a fishing village here in 1623, Alan. <laughs> All right, and it's also sitting in with me, as always, Mr. J.T. Couser coming in from the approximate area of Ohio, somewhere within the boundaries of that state. How are you doing tonight, I J.T.? I am coming to you live from the Buckeye State. We're here. Excellent. Former Sweet. rubber capital of the world. Uh, former. Uh, oh, the boy. sunny, sunny, sandy beaches of Lake Erie. We're here. You've got it all. Flatland, rubber, and beaches. Did somebody take over as the rubber capital of the world? Uh, was it Brazil or Mexico in the late 80s, I believe? Uh, the the only wow. tires made in Akron now um, are the actual tires. This is not confirmed. The NASCAR tires are the only tires that are actually made in this. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, if you t- talk to people in the 70s, there was a large black cloud over all of Akron due to all of the rubber production here. So maybe uh, Fordlandia has become the rubber capital. Oh, maybe Fordlandia's right. rubber crop finally uh, took hold. <laughs> that is a fascinating story. Look up Fordlandia. That's the, uh, the, really the Walt Disney Epcot version in it, Ford's the, life. It's, it's a yeah. good year version of, yeah. It's, yeah. All right. All right, well, it's time for this month's mailbag. Uh, JT, lots of stuff coming in. I know you've got a bunch of them here. What do, what do we got this month? Okay, so first one we're going to call a two for Tuesday here. Uh, Joey, Ooh. I think uh, is how you pronounce this. J-O-I-E. I don't want to mispronounce it, but if I did, Joey, I apologize. Joey Mayfield Stewart. First one here. This one's going to include a link in the show notes. Joey wrote, hey, guys, I have a copy of the book The Magic of Disneyland and Walt Disney World from 1979. He took pictures of every page for us to see. He doesn't have a scanner. So Joey sent us all these images here, and uh, with for his efforts, uh, I felt like rewarding and uh, just putting it in the show notes because it, it came out really nice, and it's uh, you know every page of this book, which it, it very much resembles like those. We talked about all the hardbound anniversary books and that. Very similar as far as like it's got the first page is all the characters animated, then there's attractions intermixed with uh animated and it's disneyland and disney world looks very similar to some of the books that uh that i've seen in the past so we will put that in there thank you so much joey now this is uh late breaking hot off the press news from joey and i'm hoping uh you guys didn't see or get this email or this might be a surprise to some of you so if you open our slack chat episode 69 you can view this right now um this is the actual <laughs> it's a, packaging man, I can't that Joey it. has. Now, I'll read you the story as you read oh. over the pictures there. He says, on your souvenir episodes, you guys were talking about the squeaky Mickey, the vinyl from yeah. the 1970s. And we made the joke because Todd kept referring to it wearing a cotton jumper. Uh, He still has one in the box, and he says the box sits proudly in our collection in our living room, though I've never seen if his arm is squeaky. So (laughs) 
There's the packaging. Try the leg, move the leg. We yeah. need that thing for Toy Story 2 where Jesse's like, he's oh bitten the box. Never been opened. <laughs> now, I love. It's got a it's got a price on there, too. 495 Four ninety five at AAF. Dated Ooh, 1978. It's amazing. Apes. Now, I did like, too, that wow. we were wondering, what does he do? Well, Mickey will, if you squeeze his tummy, he will toot his horn, blow his party favor, and make bubbles. Same. And uh, accessories <laughs> accessories come with it and no batteries required. A physical wow. effort by Mickey. I just want to say on the one side of the box how excited that girl looks to have that birthday cake. And I will also <laughs> yeah. say, same girl, same. I love a good birthday cake. And is it me, the blonde kid? Does he not look like Jason Hervey from uh, played Wayne Arnold on bit, The Wonder Years? A little bit. Or Doesn't Cousin Oliver a little bit like from, that? Uh, from, yeah. from the Brady Bunch? Yeah. Brady Bunch. Well, yeah. I like that there's and no a- batteries F-E-F- required for this. That's right. Apes, by the way, that's the uh, army, the, the exchange. Oh. The Ar- army and air force I, I just got to say to Joey, uh, you know, it, it's birthday party, Mickey. If you have birthday party fun with Mickey, we're having a birthday party at Retro Magic in April. And it would be great if this birthday party Mickey could come. Yeah. Yeah. Because mine is no longer a birthday party. It's just a naked Mickey. <laughs> He's got no, oh he only has the, well I take that back he's, after the he does party not have Mickey the, is what he is now he has a birthday suit but it's only the <laughs> tell you, he only has the <laughs> I think it's wait no it has the yeah, jumper yours has the jumper has the jumper but it doesn't have the hat or the or the so I so, did see one of these for sale uh, a couple years ago at a flea market but well. Uh, it, this, uh, you know, Todd, if, if Joey agrees to come, your your Mickey yeah. has to be there. So then what we're going to have here is an unofficial meeting of all the birthday party Mickeys, the most in one room in history. Squeaky, Squeaky Mickey. Mickeys. If you remember Epcot 35, we had bring your own figment. So, yeah, <laughs> we could get a world's That's record, right. a Guinness Book World Records of the most birthday party Mickey <laughs> Mouses in one location. If it was time. two, that get, would be Get it. on that right now, Hal. I want, I want the officiant there, you know, to make sure it's official. So uh, that came, uh, man, 9.05 p.m. He uh, he sent that over. So thank you, Joey. Under the wire. Uh, that's that's super fun. We'll uh, link your, your Magic of Disney book and also the Squeaky Mickey. These photos will be put into the show notes. JT, did you do you remember what uh, what what when it was? How far back? Which episode? Yeah, uh, he stated it was uh, a souvenir episode. So I think that was one of the first ten. It was, our, it was like our episode oh, six or su- whatever. Su- even- seven, yeah. yeah. Souvenirs. The receipt is in the bag, and I'm also looking at we. Um, some light is shed on the purpose of it in episode eight. We talked about it again. So and uh, it says we just got a little bit Todd Squeaky Mickey doll. So. Um, there it is, episode seven and eight. If you want to go, it's back surprising yet. how many episodes have called back to the Squeaky Mickey. I know it's a hot. It item. really is. We'll, we'll link those seven I'll and eight th- as well in the show notes if you want. We're all coming to Retro Magic and Cotton Jumpers. <laughs> <laughs> Only if my buttons are white. That's the look at that. <laughs> that's that is a requirement. That's a great great image. Though. Super fun. Okay, next up, moving on. Michael Landis wrote as he goes, "Hey guys, I've got another question for you." Uh, what was the deal with SMTV? That is Space Mountain TV. It was a TV show that ran in the Q area in the 90s. Here's a clip. This is the Pangalactic News Network. Give us 20 billion nanoseconds and we'll give you the galaxy. I'm Dirk Tachyon. It looks like a good time to check on the galactic weather with our own astro meteorologist, Wendy Beryllium. Wendy. Thanks, Dirk. 
Let's take a look at some temperatures from around the solar system. And these are on YouTube. We'll link. I don't know if we actually have one of these or if they're from Howe's archive. But uh, I, I watched this and took diligent notes. I don't know if you guys got had a chance to watch it. But uh, it had a very 90s MTV slash Nickelodeon feel. Lots of uh, quick cuts. Lots of black and white color. It included a character named Crazy Larry selling things. It, it very much fit the new Tomorrowland feel, and it was tied in with the FedEx uh, sponsorship of Space Mountain. It even had archival footage of the moon landing and the, the walking on the moon. But they took, you know, if Neil Armstrong was walking, let's say, you know, normal pace, they played it at four times the speed. So he bounced across the screen really fast. They had weather reports from various planets stating the high was going to be 600 degrees and uh, there was even full-on alien costume and makeup jobs on here, like, you know, talking. And, like, there was a FedEx commercial that said, your package means the world to us. So do you guys remember this? Do you uh, recall anything of this or know anything about this other than just seeing it in line? I do remember this. I feel like this deserves some research. Sure. Um, I know... That Jerry Rees, the director of Alien Encounter and uh, Cranium Command, worked on the FedEx commercial. Um, and we have some, I think, some behind-the-scenes photos somewhere that I picked up of uh, that makeup work being done. Um, he very well might have done all of that Space Mountain TV. Um, but it seems very Kevin Rafferty-ish to me, although I'd have to do some research to find out whether he was actually involved or not. But I, I do believe that was it, you know, it, so the, yeah, it, this, was, the, it, it was tied to the FedEx sponsorship. Absolutely. I mean, it came, it came, the, 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 the FedEx sponsorship started in 93 and uh, this was part of the retheme of the post-show area from RCA to FedEx. Uh, and it lived throughout the FedEx sponsorship uh, in various forms, but they had a whole, there was a whole loop. Uh, you know, again, because you're on that, you're supposed to keep moving there. You're not intended to see the whole, you know, whatever the loop was, 10 minutes or whatever. But there were three different FedEx advertisements spliced in with the with the phony t TV programming you were looking I, at. I bet it lasted close to an hour. You think really? I I think so because by time you by time you stood in line back then, it's like they would fill up that upper queue for Space yeah, Mountain. Yeah, that's right. And you would just sit there. So you had an opportunity. I, I can tell you that I think I have been there when I got the opportunity to see the whole thing through and it would start over again while you were waiting. There was also um, one of the parts is played by the guy who played Ortho in Beetlejuice. Ortho. He was one of the characters on there. So I'm, I'm sure there was a, a good collection of people that were part of the L.A. improv scene that were actors. But I, I bet we could with some diligence, we could probably figure out who everybody was. I do know that lasted until 2003 uh, when FedEx's sponsorship ended. And then they kept elements of it by taking the narration out so that it didn't reference FedEx anymore. And then they removed that post-show in 2009. Yeah. Uh, but there are bits of it that are still in the new post-show now, the the speed ramp and well, the speed ramp was taken out, right? You have to leg yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. You have to leg the whole thing yourself now. But <laughs> And of course the SM in 
SMTV was a play on MTV. Yes. So it was Space S- Mountain TV MTV. instead of just MTV. And the reason that stuff was sped up is like there were music videos interspersed with that too. So I think that was the first time that they'd used Dick Dale um, to do music for uh, Inside Space Mountain until he actually wrote the like, or they had him record like special music for Space Mountain in California when they added the... Um, the uh, speakers to Space Mountain, unless it worked the other way around. I don't know if they did him first and then they put that into the music video for Florida or or how that worked out. And just in case you didn't get the link between the sponsorship and the attraction, FedEx gets things there fast. That's it. Like Space Mountain is fast. Uh, I mean, you positively absolutely have to have it. Interstellar overnight. Yes. The Beetlejuice guy's name on the show is Ray Cathode. Oh, there you go. There you go. Next up is Lindsay. Lindsay wrote us. Uh, she actually worked in the college program. She was at Disney in 2012, and she was assigned to Cinderella's Royal Table. This is a great story, and you guys know how much I love a good celebrity story at Disney. She says that the night she was supposed to take a cast tour of the Castle Suite, that's the one where it, it was a year of a million dreams where you get right. picked, and you'd spend the night up there, and it was a big deal. One family a night. Um, and then, you know, the, the last I heard of that was that was it, unless you had a ton of money to go up there. Well, it was a complete coincidence, I guess, because the night she was supposed to take her cast tour, you guess it, Tom Cruise booked the castle. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and he was ready to play some football. No, <laughs> if you listen to last month, we had a great Tom Cruise football story. But um, so Tom Cruise is the reason uh, she never got to see the castle suite. I just can't believe that working in Cinderella's royal table, you couldn't pop up and take a peek, but it must be under lock and key pretty, right. pretty seriously. Now, Tom Cruise didn't stop there. He ordered stuff directly from the kitchen and the Cinderella Royal Table staff would bring it up. So I, I, I'm i assuming did it, it sounds like she took it up there because it sounds like she was was maybe on the phone taking no, the yeah, orders. Yeah, she worked at the podium. I think she tells us in there. Yeah, the, the yeah, Downstairs yeah. checking people in. But that the uh, the people who worked at Cinderella's Royal Table, like the waiters, had to deliver the food up to the castle suite for them. Yeah, and then another great uh, part of this was he took Siri, his daughter, on the merry-go-round after the park closed, which, I mean, if you're Tom Cruise, that's the only time to go on the merry-go-round. But I think that's right. another another Tom Cruise story. And there was always the rumor or the myth that like people would say, like, you know, the only people that can stay there are Year of a Million Dreams winner. And there was one time Tom Cruise, I guess, stayed there, too. And that's it confirms it right there. Well, that that's part. But they, they do let – I mean, I have seen other celebrities share – um, oh really? Like Insta Story staying up there, so it, it's it's basically a perk now for the the uber famous. It's you know they don't they don't. I, I'm sure you could buy your way in there if the number's high enough. You know if you're the Sultan of Brunei or something. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, that's. I, but I I know I have seen other celebrities who've shared clips of them staying up there. Wow, that's cool. Well, okay, well. Um, Great story. Thank you for that, Lindsay. And uh, I'm sorry Tom Cruise ruined your party, too, just like all the people that wanted to go shopping that night. Maybe he'll hear this podcast and make it up to her. Maybe. I fly her down to show you the castle suite. 
I just want to hear stories of Tom Cruise ruining people's Walt Disney World vacations from all of our <laughs> listeners. These the celebrity stories. Or any I, celebrity. I would love to hear like yes. uh, any stories of any celebrity or famous person ruining your your vacation in some way. Because like, it has to happen. There has to be somebody out there that was like, I was about to get on Splash Mountain. They let Will Smith cut in front of me and then the ride broke down for a week. And that's absolutely there are people out there like that. Like it, it's happened to all of us. For sure. So, uh, Lindsay, we appreciate that story. And if you do have a good celebrity story, keep those coming. We, we, we love sharing those, love hearing them for sure. All right. Next one is Cody. And how you have some correspondence with Cody. And we'll kind of go into this. He's got a sort of a two-parter here. He, he really wanted to know, and we, we did address this in one of our episodes, but it's always good reference. He says he has a question pertaining to Epcot. I can never keep track of which side of Future World is east and which side is west. In my mind, based on how you enter the park, the right side of Spaceship Earth should be east and the area to the left should be west. You know why? It's the exact opposite uh, of that. What's the and, reason? Yeah, and I, this is this is the actual thing that I talk about all the time on the show that I struggle with. It's so the Communicore was named the same way. Like there was Communicore east and west and and what it came down to is I was so conditioned as a child, you know, when you went to the Magic Kingdom, you entered from the south and you Fantasyland was in the north and the orientation of the park uh, on the souvenir map that you got was exactly the same as the way that it was set up, you know, in the real world. Epcot is built upside down. The entrance is in the north and the back of it, World Showcase, is in the south. But when they give you the park map, it's oriented the same way that it is on the Magic Kingdom. So effectively, Epcot is upside down on your map as it was is compared to uh, in the real world. So the directions are named after the actual like compass direction. So Future World West is actually on the right-hand side, and Future World East is on the left-hand side. As you enter the park, up, yeah. Yeah, as you enter the park. So now if you came in through World Showcase, yeah. if they handed you the map upside down, it would be perfectly, it would make perfect sense to you. But we all come in through, until that entrance was built in the back, we all came in through Future World, and they chose to not uh, make the map kind of orient itself to uh, the actual directions, which they did eventually with the Disney MGM park map, and I think also the um, the Animal Kingdom park map, where it's kind of on a diagonal um, that actually does match with the way it's set up in the real world. So that's that's the short story. They they made a decision to make it match with the compass points. And then uh, Cody follows up with saying, uh, which is a question a lot of people ask, and they wonder why it didn't happen. He says, uh, thanks for the response, obviously, but then he says, uh, you know, he, he wonders why they haven't expanded monorail lines to the studios or to other things. And he does bring up one of the biggest things. I think it's cost. I mean, that's the, the biggest. That's the actual answer, is it's, that it's so much cheaper to run buses uh, that... You know, um, what's, what, what did we come up with the monorail? I forget how many millions of dollars a mile it is now. Yeah, they used to say it was like $16 million a mile or something. Something like that. And yeah. and uh, to recoup that money uh, over time, to, or to even to make it make sense. Because uh, the monorail can only carry so many people, and then you have to run it, and you're paying, and the buses just make more sense because they can redeploy the buses as necessary. So, um 
you know, if there's a resort that's closed or light attendance, they can send less buses and do less frequent runs. And a monorail has one track and you just have to keep running that track. So uh, it's not the answer we want to hear, uh, but it's the answer. That's why. Yeah. And and there were preliminary plans to extend sure. the monorail system, you know, from Epcot over to Lake Buena Vista. But it just it just didn't ever work out. Yeah. Really. I mean, and and the, I mean, there's always like every every. It seems like every time they build one of these places, uh, or or a series of places, there's some kind of cool transportation idea. Of course, we all know that Epcot was going to have a people mover. The, the shopping village was going to have a people mover. Um, the if you remember when they were doing, uh, I always forget the name. What what the hell junction there at? Uh, Buffalo Junction. Country. Buffalo Junction. There was going to be a little train that ran between Wilderness Lodge and the shopping area and the new resort. And, you know, just it, it, that stuff, <laughs> it all just goes by the wayside because they just find it's easier to just put them on a bus. Yeah. Or now a Skyliner, which is apparently more well, cost effective than monorails. So the, you know, the Skyliner is, and my understanding is that that the, the impetus behind that partially was that there was an agreement to take X number of buses off the roads green. with the Department of Transportation, Green Initiative, the whole thing. And they did find out that these, you know, uh, gondola systems are super cheap and efficient. So and move a ton of people. And they do. So, yeah. And, uh, you know, we 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 wish that was uh, obviously Cody, the expansion would be cool. It would be neat to see it happen, but I think we're we're lucky that it's there because I think if they were building this all now, I don't know if you'd see a monorail built between all the hotels like that. So, just wouldn't be cost effective. Then, uh, the other one he asks here is his dad's favorite memory of Disney, and one of mine too was sitting up in the front of the monorail with the driver. He was saying, "When did that stop? Why doesn't happen?" And I believe it was, uh, man, 2007, eight. There was a, a crash around that vintage, and um, that that pretty much stopped it from that point on. Yeah. July 5th of 2009. 2009. 2009. So just yep. almost exactly the anniversary. And uh, Monorail Purple, uh, I think, was the one that, that crashed. So that's why there is not a purple on the line anymore. And uh, I think, if I recall, the Transportation Safety Board's review, uh, the guy who should have been the supervisor uh, left to get dinner, uh, like ran out to Wawa or something to get dinner. And that was I'd sent, cited as one of the reasons for the crash. Uh, yeah, it was but, it was yeah. that. And then like uh, we quite lost, a few, lost the monorail pilot and that and quite a know, few that. safety checks were, were bypassed as well. So, yeah, but. You know that that was definitely uh, you see a lot of the old concept art. There was people in the in the front, and that was a big deal. But you know, it it definitely I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So hop on a Skyliner if you want that front car view nowadays. I mean, per, perhaps if the monorails are ever automated, as it's said they are going to do someday, you know, maybe they'll be safe enough to be able to ride in the front again because it is a super enjoyable experience, and you definitely get that kind of king of the world feeling when you're up front looking out that glass window. I told you, Dom, I think the first indication of the automating will be the new Polynesian station. If that platform has been raised up, then you can bet you that's probably coming. Because the platforms are not suited right now for automated doors. So, be interesting. Time will tell. For sure. Well, thanks, Cody. We appreciate all of that. All right, finally, we're going to hit you up with one here from Tobias, a.k.a. Dr. Chopper. 
Uh, he says, uh, he, he big thanks for creating the podcast. He just uh, stumbled into it after seeing a retro WDW post shared in a Disney group, and he's uh, getting into it here. So I wanted to share a story with us. He says as he was uh, exiting the park one day, his take, dad was taking the last five seconds of a Super 8 film. Uh, as he was halfway down the street, a figure appeared at the door of the magic shop on Main Street in a red glittering coat and a white glove. Uh, Tobias said hello and giggled and said hello back and asked if he wanted to see a few magic tricks that they needed more than one person to do them. So we walked over and got a five-minute magic show with a few card tricks and something where I had to hold pieces of a rope with uh, the magician whose name was Michael. The magician finished, and then he thanked us for his time out of our night, taking time out of our night, and uh, so that we could be the see, be the guest to see the tricks that he performed. Before the cast members continued to make sure we made our way out and waiting for the pair vote at the TTC, I asked if I could get an autograph because he was Michael Jackson. So uh, Tobias thought this was Michael Jackson, which is is pretty funny to think. Michael, the magician, laughed and said, well, actually, I am Michael Jason, and the real Michael wouldn't want me giving out his autograph, especially from a place he loves so much. Uh, and also, a re request for a picture was also denied. So, Tobias didn't get the picture with Michael Jason or the autograph, it sounds like, and his dad used up all the Super 8 film on the castle so they didn't get to uh get the footage of the magic trick or michael jason or michael jackson uh to this day i'm still on the fence about this if it was him or not many said it was probably a cast member who was impersonating him and dressed up like him uh to head to a late night performance in town but would that be allowed in 1983 disney with guests still in the park I, either way I, go yeah, ahead i'm gonna say it wasn't a cast. I mean, a, a cast member up there interacting with a guest for five minutes, like Dick Nunes would fire that guy on the spot dressed up like Michael Jackson work, you know, like that just wouldn't happen. Like they, they, they're, you know, you think it was a park guest in there just, you know, I, I, I don't think it was a part. I mean, I, I don't know that a park guest dress. I mean, people did dress like Michael Jackson back then. That's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, the but, jacket but, and the, but you know, they were moving guests out of the park at that point. This guy's doing tricks in the magic shop. I, I mean, I'm not saying it was Michael Jackson or not, because even Michael Jackson didn't really walk around with one glove on. Like, he did it on stage, <laughs> but that was, not, that was not his normal. You don't see like, you don't see Michael Jordan walking through the Magic Kingdom in a Bulls jersey. <laughs> right, that's right. So, you know, Michael Jackson had that one glittery glove. That actually, it was diamonds. It was actually all diamonds, if I remember the story correctly. It was a, like a $25,000 glove with all these little diamond studs on it. Uh, and he wore it, you know, in the Billie Jean performance at Motown. And that was like kind of his thing was this one glove. And he would still do it in performances into the 90s. Uh, but I, I, like, I, we didn't walk around the street in one glove and certainly not the magic kingdom. That wouldn't make any sense. Yeah. So, I, it's, it's very interesting. And he says, uh, at the end, uh, he, Michael did tell him you have to, you have nice parents, make sure you listen to them. And Michael Jackson giving out, you know, advice to children I, too. I mean, we know Michael Jackson went all the time. So I, I you know, who knows? I did find it interesting. Now, if you go farther into the future, into the 2000s, like I remember seeing like video camera footage of Michael Jackson walking through stores in like full like makeup, like he'd have a Hollywood makeup artist come and put prosthesis oh, on yeah. him so he could go. Uh, is this very possible? But, you know, it, it, so I guess the, the real question is, is there a magician out there with the real name Michael Jason that can reach out to us? Or do you know a Michael Jason to debunk Michael Jackson actually doing this? Because... 
if we can find the real magician, that would answer this. But uh, it, Tobias, fun story. We appreciate you writing to us. Uh, and good luck in the, your parents' attic looking for all that film footage because we'd love to see the five seconds of the castle before you met Michael Jason. That would be hilarious. So I'm going to go with a totally different theory. I'm right, going to go say it was, T, it was Tito impersonating <laughs> Michael Jackson to get better treatment. <laughs> what's that the too? What's in the office? Hello. Hey, Ryan. This is Michael Jackson. Wonderland. You mean Neverland? This is Tito. What? Pick up. Hello? This is Mike Tyson. Well, thank you everybody for that. Uh, lots of good stuff this month. As we said, keep your celebrity stories coming. They're super fun and we appreciate all the normal, quote unquote, normal questions about uh, Epcot, everything else. And we also appreciate all the uh, additions to our ephemera, to our videos, to anything you might have. Send them our way. Reach out to us, though, via email to end up possibly on the show from the mailbag podcast at RetroWDW.com. Also reach out to us via Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook message. We read it all, we see it all, and uh, there's a good chance it could end up on the show in a future episode. All right, gentlemen, well, it's time for this month's main topic. As we said at the beginning of the show, uh, we're going to be going back to Pleasure Island for part three, namely the Adventures Club and Comedy Warehouse, which I will say I've been to both. And uh, how I know you're leading this one and you've done... A phenomenal job with the other two Pleasure Island episodes, so I can't imagine you not being able to do this one in same fashion. So we left off last time. Uh, Pleasure Island was up and running. We went through a lot of the dance clubs. We talked about the entrances and, and, and mannequins and the dance floor. And my goodness, we even got into some of the 1990s technology that was running these shows and lights and stuff, right? Yeah. Um, which was fantastic. But we really left out these two key um venues if you will because they really became something of their own in a way and um they were kind of not like the other things on pleasure island they were very very different so uh, i'm looking forward to hearing the history of this and uh i've got my own fun stories that i can tell about uh, one of them as well I, I was at both i've been to both before so how let's turn it over to you it's still the mid 90s here right we're we're cranking that's right we're gonna start tonight at the comedy warehouse Um, which is in the location that is now occupied by the restaurant called STK. Um, Yes. Which is no no joke. It is really called. (laughs) But you can still get chicken there. Yeah, any pork. Can you get food? I'd like a mignon. They really... Is it supposed to be steak or is it really STK? Like it's steak. Yeah, Yeah. it's supposed to be a hippie, edgy steak. It's just it's hip when you take the vowels out, I suppose. Right. So. They should have just okay. called it food. Tid. And then they could have carried everything. That's <laughs> Todd is tid. And how is who? And JT, you don't even exist. There's no vowels here. Jet. So, from the outside, Comedy Warehouse appeared to be, well, a warehouse. In fact, from one of the walkways approaching the building, the sign was designed to look like dimensional letters of the word comedy uh, added on top of the already existing lettering that said warehouse. 
but the most recognizable version of the logo in what ended up on the signs facing the promenade and on the merchandise were a pair of wind-up chattering teeth next to the word comedy set in a thick script typeface with warehouse set in a mismatched combination of letters with the S hanging precariously at an angle. Boy, if that doesn't say funny, I don't know what does. Uh, uh, w does your does your script include uh, a mention of the explosion of comedy clubs in the latter half of the 70s and most of the mm. 80s? No, but please yeah, feel free to, I, I to mean, jump that in That kind of became a thing that stand up, you know, prior to the latter half of the 70s, uh, the stand up trade was, you know, these these old vaudeville type acts uh, in transition. So you get guys like Alan Sherman who did the jokey um, the jokey uh, songs. Oh, the songs, yeah. Or you had some guy, well, a ventriloquist would get up there and th th there was always something to the act. Uh, George George Burns and Gracie Allen who transitioned from, from vaudeville to television. You know, that, that, that straight man, you know, funny, funny guy delivering the punchlines, the zingers. Husband and wife acts. I mean, all that kind of stuff was the the Ed Sullivan era, uh, but you know, just a man or a woman standing up there at the microphone and telling you jokes for half an hour that were more than Henny Youngman doing one-liners. Uh, that really developed more the the latter half of the '60s, the '70s. It was kind of avant-garde in the beginning, and then you know you got to the point where guys like um, Lenny Bruce would do like a whole hour just at the microphone uh, with stories and, and punchlines and uh, that were they're longer and more drawn out. But anyway, that those nightclubs, uh, you know, started to develop in major cities uh, where it was nothing but comedians, where comedians used like comedians used to open for like Frank Sinatra. You'd have like a comedian go on for a half an hour and do his act. In fact, until Sinatra stopped touring in the 90s. Uh, like he still had a comedian, <laughs> comedian open for him, not not an opening musical act. Uh, and, and that was like the Rolling Stones and other people would have comedians open for them. So, uh, you know, it kind of developed where there was this, it was, it was, it was a, it was a job and anybody could try it out and you went to these clubs and they put you on and then you tried to get on the national circuit and then you tried to get, you know, regional TV and then the tonight show started featuring to, and so the latter half of the seventies and throughout the eighties, there was this explosion. Every city was opening you know, two dozen comedy yep. clubs where they would put a microphone in front of a faux, faux brick wall uh, in a little you know, club <laughs> yeah. that seated 100 or 200 people. And, you know, they'd come in there and feed you drinks and there'd be, you know, six, seven, eight comedians that would go on in a night. And Brian, what you described for those watching the show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, is exactly what you described. She is working her way up through the club. She is opening acts for... Uh, you know, I forget the gentleman's name and the the the, 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 the uh, musician, but she's opening acts for musicians. She's worked her way through the club. It's the exact same thing. So it, it echoes yeah. exactly what went on during and, that time and period. It did crest, you know, by the 90s. As the 90s went on, more and more of the clubs started to close. And now most cities have a handful, you know, three or four comedy clubs. And that's it. It's it's not. But but back then there were just a ton of them. So it made perfect sense that Disney would say, well, we got to have one of those, you know. And we, we can't forget, too, that, like, Cinemax and HBO, right? Stand How much up specials, this, Oh, yep. my good. Stand-up specials well, between, he, you know, Sam he's, Kinison he's and so, everybody. I mean, go back, and, I mean, he's persona non grata now, but Bill Cosby himself, Richard Pryor, Live oh, at yeah. the Sunset Strip, Eddie Murphy, Raw and Delirious, 
Um, oh, Steve Martin's. Steve Martin's Steve special. Martin? Oh, yeah, the Gary yeah. Shandling specials on Showtime, which were amazing. Stephen Wright. If everybody knows Stephen Wright, you know, there, <laughs> oh, just, there was this. I installed a skylight yeah. the other day. The people upstairs are angry. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you're going the speed of light and you turn your headlights on, do they do anything? <laughs> I mean, it's just, that's Stephen Wright, folks. He's yeah, great. he's terrific. <laughs> Uh, Look I saw up. him live, actually, with my dad about 20-plus oh. years ago at the Keswick Theater. It was terrific. Still nice. doing the same act, but it's still funny. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, those those guys all had, like, hour-long... And Rita Rudner. I mean, it wasn't just a male thing. Rita Rudner and uh, Elaine Boozler and you know, just all these, you know... I don't think you could get kids today to name 10 comedians like, like we just did. That's funny. You know, even right. Ellen DeGeneres became... That was how she got That's right. her start. Was, she was really funny stand-up. So then what's fascinating, Brian, is that Disney did not do that at all <laughs> with that? their comedy club. <laughs> it's a good thing we have you here, Hal, to as, set us straight. As, as we'll talk about. So it, it is interesting that dis, although comedy clubs were a big trend, the show actually started out as something different and then morphed into uh, more of an improv-style show as, as was made famous by the Second City and other uh, comedy troops, I know, other than just the straight stand-ups. Because although they did from time to time bring in stand-ups too, so it was kind of a weird, you know, mixed bag of things sometimes. So uh, so let's get into that. Um, all right, so so entry to the building was on the west end of the, uh, of the plaza stage overlooking the west end stage. So you could stand outside and listen to music from Frankie and the West End Boys. The queue would snake back and forth outside an odd uh, corrugated metal wall with a row of lights set up to illuminate posters or a bulletin board. Now, I have a vague recollection of there being a bulletin board under the glass there. So if, if any of your listeners can actually confirm or deny that for me, um, that would be great because I, I can't remember, but it sure looked like there was meant to be something there. Um, as we mentioned in the last Pleasure Island episode, a cash bar cart was situated outside so you could purchase drinks while you were waiting in line. Um, and because the bar overlooked the West End, the drinks were themed around Pleasure Island's clubs. So you had Rage in the Cage, for the cage, the Fun Meister, Jessica's Secret, which was based on the Jessica Rabbit store, the Superstar, the Armadillo Punch, which was from the Neon Armadillo, and the Frankie's West Ender. So look at that. One of the stage performers actually got a drink named after him. It was probably his proudest moment in life. Pro probably. <laughs> Uh, by the looks and ingredients list, they were all pretty terrible. Um, but I'm, you know, sure they would get you tipsy. Um, over time, a more permanent outdoor bar was constructed called Laughers. So that, at least the name kind of tied in there better with the idea of a comedy club. Uh, people would usually start queuing about 30 to 45 minutes before each showtime. Um, and there were typically about five shows performed uh, per night. The theater held 290 guests per show, so the outdoor queue would get pretty packed with people. Uh, and after being led inside the building, parties would be directed down one of several hallways to start filling in rolls of tall stools facing small bar tops lit with rope lights. Uh, and the rows in the room were kind of stacked on top of each other in a way where the audience members had a really clear view over the tops of the heads of the people seated in front of them. So Todd, you, did you go to the Comedy Warehouse? Was that the one that you remember? I, I do. I, I remember the Ventures Club more, but I do remember going, oh, I think it was towards the end of it. It had to be like 03 when I went, uh, when they were doing the whole 
make fun of Disney shtick okay. later on. So I didn't. I don't recall the but I remember going in and well, he came in from the right if I recall too, and kind of walked across. But yeah, yeah. Um, so after being seated, a waiter or waitress would come around and take food and drink orders, which would be delivered to you as the show was going on. Um, so for and how was it? Do I recall correctly? It was two levels. There was a balcony oh, oh, level. Oh, it, right? it was multiple levels. So was it multiple? It was okay. done like a, like a, well, I don't know. I would say it would. I, can, I won't say that it was done like a theater, because mm-hmm. it was very steep, <laughs> and and each yeah. each seating level was probably about eight foot. So that so that way okay. there was like a kind of a wall behind you, and then the people were seated up there, and then another level behind them, and it, so it was. So the three levels, if if we're going on what STK is, it was Irk, Miz, and Bulk. <laughs> yeah. Is that correct? Okay, just check. <laughs> um, so they would come get your drink order for buck fifty. You could get a bucket of popcorn. A, mm-hmm. a pretzel would set you back a dollar seventy-five. They had a specialty drink menu, which was a little limited. Um, they had a banana rama, a banana split, a strawberry hill, and a pina colada. Each of those would cost you three dollars. I'm sorry, each of those would cost you five dollars and twenty-five cents, but were also available in a non-alcoholic version for three seventy-five. Oh. There was there was also a full liquor bar and beer. Uh, but smoking was not permitted in the club, nice. which at that time was one of the few ones where you could not smoke. Um, there's an early piece of concept art uh, that we have where it looks like a repurposed loading dock on the inside. Uh, but later on, we have a, another one where it looks more like what was constructed, uh, but the walls were covered with large props of comedic objects like rubber chickens and chattering teeth and kind of how the gag factory was set up at the back lot of Disney MGM and Disneyland's Toontown. Um, but in the end, the interior ended up being decorated with a variety of Disney props uh, that did look like they came out of a warehouse. A mind-numbing amount of Disney props. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and amongst those odds and ends were old parade pop props, stuffed animals, a large photograph of a Funicello, uh, and a couple of real standouts. There was a sign from Captain Hook's Galley, which was a restaurant that replaced the Chicken of the Sea restaurant uh, inside the pirate ship in Disneyland's Fantasyland and one of the follow me to the image work signs with figment from Journey into Imagination at Epcot Center uh, and Christmas lights just everything was draped in white Christmas lights um, one of the neatest little details uh, were props that were representations of Walt Disney World's theme parks made out of found objects so there was like a castle for the Magic Kingdom there was a large golf ball wrapped sort of by rickety uh, Lionel train tracks that was supposed to be uh, Future World, Spaceship Earth. Okay. Um, there was also a cardboard Chinese Pai Fang, that, a thing that sits outside the China Pavilion they walk through the archway, mm-hmm. and, a, and a Japanese uh, Goju Noto uh, Pagoda from World Showcase. Uh, and there was even kind of this improvised Miss Tilly on Mount May Day with backlit letters, letters that said Tycoon Lagoon instead of Typhoon Lagoon. <laughs> so if you're wondering how these decorations relate to an improvisational comedy club, the answer is they don't. Uh, what most visitors to Pleasure Island never knew or don't remember after having too many Bananaramas is that Comedy Warehouse did not open with improv but with a scripted show named Forbidden Disney. So when this club opened, it it was a stage show more along the lines of Hoop-Doo-Doo Review. Um, it wasn't improv comedy at all or even stand-up comedy. Um, Forbidden Disney was an unheard of idea for the company to produce as it dared to do something that no Disney live show ever did before. 
poke fun at the Disney Corporation, cast members, and guests. It made light of high prices, hot weather, horse poop on Main Street, and corporate-sponsored attractions. It even suggested that guests go and visit SeaWorld. This is like Universal's donkey now. Yeah, <laughs> it was. And as, as we go on, there's actually more stuff that like it would play so well today compared to back then. Like back then, this was crazy. Today, like people would die for this. Now we just call it social media. <laughs> there you go. The show was written and directed by Tom Shoreman, um, who came out of the 1960s improv scene in Minneapolis. He helped write and direct shows at the Adventures Club and also wrote and directed the Anacomical Players show at the Wonders of Life Pavilion at Epcot Center. Later, he would co-write Disney's Mr. Magoo film with fellow Minneapolis Brave New Workshop alum and famed comedy writer Pat Proft. I know. Was that? I know. Was that Leslie Nielsen? That was right. That was the Leslie Nielsen film. Yeah. I had forgotten up until this point that they made a Mr. Magoo film. And then when you brought it up, I was like, oh, yes, that happened. <laughs> yeah. And P Pat Prop also wrote the um, the um, uh, Police Academy movies. So he was a very um, well-known Hollywood comedy writer. Um, music and lyrics for the musical portions of the show were written by Lynn Hart, uh, with Disney show writers Kevin Rashford and Rich Proctor providing lyrics for additional songs. Forbidden Disney was over 60 minutes in length in its original form and presented as a show within a show. The audience is told that the real show performers are stuck in line at Spaceship Earth and won't be able to make it to the theater in time. Was it still popular back then? Like, that's the worst. <laughs> that might not yeah. be the one to pick that they were stuck in line. I don't know. 1990. I guess yeah, it was still yeah. long lines. I don't know. Uh, so the stagehands decided to perform a show that they did at the old Disney bowling banquet. Uh, a pianist plays a melody of Disney songs as the props are set up on stage for the first act. When the piano player plays Small World, uh, one of the stagehands shoots him with a toy pistol. <laughs> no jury in the world would convict me. In the first act, the family prayers to leave to Disney World on their vacation. Each one of the um, parents, I'm sorry, each one of the family gets a, uh, a solo song. The nerdy, the nerdy dad is excited and sings about how well he has everything planned. I guess, Todd, that's probably much <laughs> like yourself. Um, Margot, the mom, isn't as excited. She says, all we ever seem to do is walk and eat and eat and eat and eat. <laughs> um, the teenage daughter is predictably upset to be spending so much time with her parents. Um, their car runs out of gas and they're stranded in the middle of the Everglades. Eventually, they are rescued by the fairy godmother, played by a burly gentleman in the full costume straight <laughs> out of the Cinderella movie. <laughs> After a few more musical numbers, the fairy godmother transports them to Orlando. And as the curtain opens, a sign reads, Welcome to Dismal World. The, fair, the godmother quickly reacts to the letters which have fallen off of the more familiar Welcome to Walt Disney World sign, and she arranges them to go back into the place so it says the right thing. So that got a big laugh, too. Um, next, the audience is introduced to three cast members who perform a really funny song called Super Conscientious Friendly Disney World Employees to the tune of Mary Poppins' supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Uh, and the lyrics are about the ridiculous lengths that cast members go through to do their jobs with a positive attitude. It was written by a longtime Imagineer and show writer, Kevin Rafferty, and it was a real standout and never failed to get laughs from the audience. Yeah. 
The family disperses and the show shifts in tone to a turn-of-the-century melodrama as the narrator describes how the family attempts to see the entirety of Walt Disney World in a single day. The dad goes off to fill his mission to do it all, the mom decides to take it slow and just enjoy herself, and the daughter goes off looking for something that's not boring. Eventually, the mom wanders into Future World and meets Krusty Crouton, the mascot of the Miracle of Crouton's Pavilion. <laughs> Krusty straps her into a wooden rolling chair and takes her into the pavilion where Jack Wagner has a recorded cameo delivering a warning spiel. Kindly remember that we do request to be no flash photography <laughs> during your journey to the wonderful world of croutons. Please remain seated at all times. Place your hands and arms inside the vehicle. Then put your left foot in, put your left foot out, put your left foot in, and shake it all out. The voice of Disneyland. The trip through the pavilion has scenes parroting Spaceship Earth, the American Adventure, and Kitchen Cabaret. The scene changes, and a Steven Spielberg-like movie director warns the teenage daughter that a shark is loose in Tycoon Lagoon, uh, and a set of dolphin fins on rollers is dragged across the stage with a sign that reads, When in Orlando, visit the other place. <laughs> Which is a nod to SeaWorld. Um, the teenage daughter is bored by the attractions at Walt Disney World. She's offered a chance to see animation being drawn and exhibit about computers. Uh, she's not interested at all. She's finally tempted by a sign that says keep out. And she decides to do some urban exploring. How about that? That's completely topical today. Yeah. Um, she meets Tron from the movie, which nobody seems to remember. Uh, and a black lit dance number ensues. The mom then appears uh, with a bag of souvenirs that she's just purchased. I have got goofy sweatshirts, mini t-shirts, Dumbo air conditioner, a Winnie the Pooh garden press, and look, new Disney products, Chippendale jumper cables. Uh, and then we meet two small world dolls who hate each other. They get into a fight, and eventually they cause the attraction to go in a war. It's a small world, all right? Too small for the both of us. Oh, you want to take this outside? Come on, go oh, right here. Right here. Right here. Right here. Right here. That I would pay to see. Yeah. <laughs> that I really I would love to see two two small world dogs being fisticuffs with each other. The narrator once again details the father's exploits in trying to see the park park's attractions in one day with the help of a dapper dance like barbershop quartet. And we catch up with the mother again in World Showcase, where she dreams of being a Disney princess. She meets Snow White, who tells her that being a princess isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Come once a week. It's hell. Beyond the pale. Just imagine I'm the line flapping there 
the Snow White number was quickly dropped due to blowback from Rob Lowe's poorly received Snow White skit at the Oscars. We, we talked about that. Oh, yeah. Just what? An episode or two ago? Um, Disney's lawyers felt like it would look good for Disney to be suing the Oscars production, the Oscars producers while they were performing their own parody of Snow White. So they had to cut that number out. Um, but that also inspired a lawyer character to get added to the show who would appear whenever a member of the cast was impersonating a Disney character and he would kind of <laughs> shut things down. Yeah. Eventually the family is reunited. The mother sings a reprise of her vacation song to cheer up the dad who's distraught for not being able to see everything. The daughter's happy to have gone because she met a boy, Tron, and the fairy, re- the fairy godmother reappears and tells the father that he's vacationing incorrectly. And there's this whole song about how you have to relax and not overplan everything, which of course is ridiculous given what you have to do today. Uh, the dad learns the error of his ways, and in true Disney fashion, the show ends with a patriotic song about America for no particular reason. And it really does, just like every Bob Yanni production. There's a big patriotic America, right? America, like, yeah, just just because um during its run the, sh- the show changed a few times including the addition of, a- of christmas theme songs during the holidays um also longtime disney favorite performer and river rascal danny zevitt joined the cast for a while as the narrator of that show so from the best that i can tell this version of the show lasted for about a year um, although it always got big laughs from audiences florida's management was allegedly uncomfortable poking fun at itself and the show may not have held up to the repeat audiences that were starting to make Pleasure Island a habit. Even when the show switched to the improvisational comedy format, segments of the show were sometimes slotted into the set. So that's probably how you saw bits of it yeah. in 2003 time. Yep, yep, makes sense. Because they had stopped doing the whole thing. But they'd still every so often pull one out to do a segment of it. Um, the direction for the new show improv format came from Chris Oyen, who was a member of New York's successful Chicago City Limits improv group um, before he moved to Orlando to become the Adventurers Club writer and a director in January of 1990. Um, Although the improvisational comedy format wouldn't get national attention until Drew Carey's Whose Line Is Anyway uh, in 1999 when that was broadcast on ABC, the new comedy warehouse show continued to draw audiences all the way up into Pleasure Island's closure in 2008. Uh, Although in later years, the improv show would occasionally be supplemented by shows featuring traditional stand-up comics, as Brian was talking about. Um, The cast used several classic improv games in their shows. One of the most memorable aspects of the show was using an onstage telephone to call a second phone located on the right-hand side of the audience um, section. And the lucky person who picked up the receiver would have a song spontaneously written about them based on information about their lives that they provided to the performer. I vaguely and remember I, that part too. Yeah. Yes. And it actually happened to me. Oh really? <laughs> yes, it did. I was, I think I was there on my birthday and I ended up sitting next to the phone, even though I knew it was coming and, uh, it was not pretty, wow. not, not pretty at all. Um, another popular bit was Schmepperty, uh, where the audience would suggest professions and then the comedians would play a round of a jeopardy like game with the audience giving the answers while the comedians came up with questions true to the nature of their assumed characters. So that was kind of a good bit. Um, the Comedy Warehouse cast has reunited several times. Uh, from 2011 to 2015, a Comedy Warehouse holiday special show 
was performed at a couple of locations in Disney's Hollywood Studios. Um, the group also appeared at uh, the Destination D event in Orlando in 2014. So, kind of dead, but like not all lost. Um, some of the performers became staples of the Walt Disney World Entertainment. Uh, pianist and accompanist Carol Stein still performs at Epcot Center. Um, she plays piano in the UK Pavilion, uh, either inside the Rose and Crown or sometimes in the uh, gazebo out in the back. Uh, and she often plays inside the festival, um, what is that called? The old um, Millennium Festival building. Uh, oh, Millenn 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 Center. Millennium Village, right? Is that it? Yeah, so that, like whatever that. they call that building now, it's like she will sometimes play on the stage there during like food and wine festivals and things. Um, Mary Thompson Hunt performed at the Adventures Club, uh, was one of the citizens of Hollywood and worked with the events department at uh, countless corporate events. Um, June Lockwood is currently a show writer with Walt Disney Imagineering. Joy Anderson performed at the Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor. And Mark Daniel is now the host of the web series Inside Disney Parks on ABC.com and the Disney Parks YouTube channel. So several alum have uh, have managed to do well. They've hung around, yeah. They have. JT, since you popped in, did you ever go to Comedy Warehouse? I did not. No, I was never... Uh... But we had one focus when we went to Pleasure Island. It wasn't watching comedy show. We'll just put it that way. <laughs> that was, you know. You, oh, so you were of age. Oh, okay. yeah. We just were, checking. I mean, literally okay. 21, 20, 22. So, I mean, we, we didn't go to sit down and watch comedy. Now I would, but not then. Yeah, that's that makes sense. And Brian, did you ever go? <clears throat> I recall at least once, but I think twice. Uh, I okay. remember going. Uh, so it's. It's an interesting, you know, as we go through these episodes, it's interesting to think about my own history with Pleasure Island because my trips uh, back then, uh, I was the commando people I make fun of now. You know, there, there's a battle plan and you're there at rope drop and you're maximizing your time and you're there's some nighttime show every night, uh, you know, whether it's Fantasmic or the Magic Kingdom fireworks or whatever. Uh, you know, Pleasure Island was like the last thing I wanted to do at 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night was, oh, let's go downtown. I hate, I always hated downtown Disney. I'm not particularly fond of Disney Springs. I mean, I just find the whole thing like it's sensory overload for me and always too many people. Uh, but so we didn't spend a lot of time down there. And I remember the, the only visit to Pleasure Island uh, that I recall in its nightclub, you know, in the in the over 21 era. Um, we'll talk about when we get to the Adventures Club, but I we did the Comedy Club, I know at least once, and I know we went into the Adventures Club a couple of times as well uh, to see it. And my recollection is it was a trip I took with uh, a group of friends because I remember my one friend and his wife being with us, and, and so it was not like a family trip or, or anything like that, but... You know, that's so I, I like the comedy club, though. I do remember laughing a lot and just being fascinated by yeah. all the props and seeing things from old attractions and the things props, up there. To me, as a nerd, that was one of the coolest things is going in there and just looking at all the stuff. Yeah, because it so people understand, like the walls, there was like chicken wire, right? And behind the chicken wire was 
all of these or you know up above them like shelves yeah there were and shelves things, and things where you right. couldn't get to it where you couldn't get to it it was high enough that you couldn't get to it uh but there were like you know it's like oh that's from journey into imagination there's a magic journeys thing and there's something from mr toad's wild rides <laughs> you know <laughs> it's almost like mgm backlot tour all over kind of yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hope it all went back <laughs> into the art, into the warehouse, warehouse where the archives or something was done. So, all right, well, that's Comedy Warehouse. So let's move across the promenade to the second of Pleasure Island's crown jewels, the Adventurers Club. Uh, yeah, when it opened in 1989, the exterior had a very unassuming design with only a small plaque on the outside wall. And the name of the club in metal letters above the door. Uh, but with the 1990s redevelopment of Pleasure Island, the club's exterior got a major upgrade with weathering and texturing added to the building's exterior, Egyptian and Peruvian styled relics scattered outside, skulls on spears, the skeleton of a parachutist caught on the roof, and more importantly for the club's operation, a revolving door, which helped keep the sound from the West End stage from leaking into the club every time the door opened and closed, ensuring that the club's performers could be heard. And we talked about this the last time and some big problems still with the new version of Disney Springs is how do you get people to come inside when the outside of the of your building looks nothing like what's going on inside of the building. They have figured that out now. You blow bubbles at them or have a hula hoop. <laughs> <laughs> a hula hooper always does it, right? Finally. Finally, the geniuses. You mean Jack Lindsay. Jack Jack Lindsay's bar kind. Well, maybe not. Jock Jock Lindsay. Jock Lindsay. Sorry. There is yeah. a. There are some pieces of an airplane on the outside, but things like the Edison. Yeah. It's like you have no clue. Yeah, that one's. You really don't know if you're going to eat there. or You're going to do something. Yeah, you just you can't tell what's going on. Ironically enough, I um, find that that whole stretch is like that. Uh, the Edison, what's the the speakeasy one that you go underneath or whatever? That one, you don't really know it's there. There, it's very tough to to know. It is. Oh, Enzo's, Enzo's hideaway. Yeah, it's exceedingly well hidden. Um, so, uh, the Adventurers Club itself was loosely patterned after New York City's Explorers Club, which was founded in 1904 as an organization to unite the era's actual adventurers and explorers who are leading scientific expeditions of discovery around the globe. Around the globe. Um, other influences that are cited as contributing to the Pleasure Island Club's ideation were Tamara, a live theatrical multi-rooms multi play staged in an Elks Hall in Los Angeles in the late 1980s, and Imagineer Joe Rohde's Last Days of the Raj costume house party. And I guess he would have this party in his backyard and people would dress up in sort of adventure costumes and that just sort of got everybody into a mood and a vibe. Um, also, Imagineering was enamored with the results of guests mingling with improvised character personalities at shows at Epcot Center's World Showcase. And so they started off looking for similar opportunities with that concept, uh, with, with any concept actually that they were developing for Disney Parks. So um, they asked SAK theater founder Craig McNair Wilson to come on in as a consultant to try to develop ideas and characters uh, that could potentially be used in new clubs at Pleasure Island. Um, Imagineer Chris Carradine led the design of the exterior and interior of the space, and Rick Rothschild was in charge of the overall direction of the entertainment. Um, Joe Rohde, who is 
kind of a young art director at that point, um, served as an art director for the club. And he worked very closely with the head writer, show producer, and show director Roger Cox to kind of flesh out what the spirit of the club would be. Um, in the end, Cox would write and direct the club's scripted shows, while Wilson would work with the actors on their skills, performing in-character improvisational interactions with the guests. And that's kind of interesting for an actor. It's like typically, you know, either you're really good at improv or you're really good at like, hey, I read this script a million times and I do this thing over and over again. So, you know, having actors and actresses that could do both of those things well is is probably kind of a rare thing. Um, you know, a, a magic-themed bar was originally intended to be the club's next-door neighbor. Uh, I told the story about how Eisner went to Rosie O'Grady's to the Cheyenne Saloon and said, we ought to have a, a country and western bar at Pleasure Island. So they... They nixed the idea of a magic bar, but several of the illusions that were intended for that magic club actually ended up finding a new home in the Adventurers Club. Um, and I think in the end, the creative team created what I think is one of one of the most interesting, befuddling, immersive, and oddly comfortable locations on all of Disney property. Um, I'd like the rest of Pleasure Island, which was set in the world of you know today. Uh, the Adventurers Club was specifically set in 1937 during an open house, and they never really addressed how you moved back in time or between the two periods. Um, did, didn't the placard out front say? It, it, <laughs> I mean, well, it, it had it to did. address something, right? Uh, actually, so that's the thing. So the the plaques all talked about how Pleasure Island, you know, was built lost and reclaimed in the 80s but in this club it is as if none of that had ever happened it's it's like you were going to going through a know, time, time portal a yeah. time portal to like meriwether adam pleasure's house which was then you know handed over to become this explorers club um so you'd enter from the top floor kind of go past an entrance podium often picking up a card detailing the evening's shows and times and a typical night schedule would kind of go like this. It'd be a radio serial thriller broadcast in the library at 7.30. Uh, Fletcher's lecture in the treasure room at 7.50. Fingers taking requests in the library at 8. The new member initiation in the mask room at 8.10. Uh, this was prior to um, the Adventurers Club song being written, so they, they did kind of a different ceremony. Um, the Balderdash Cup competition in the library at 8.30. Hathaway's lecture in the mask room at 9.10, and the cabaret in the library at 10. So as a first time to the club, you had absolutely no idea what any of that meant, but it sounded both intriguing and time-consuming. So I know the first time I went and I got handed one of these little cards, I was just like, I felt like uh, it's already 9 o'clock. I have missed half of the stuff that is going on here because <laughs> I went to the uh, one of the other clubs first. Um, guests would enter uh, on the mezzanine, whose walls were filled with unusual artifacts and black and white photos labeled with little filthy descriptions. Uh, the objects, which were purported to be from all over the world, were actually largely purchased at the Rolls Bowl Swap Meet and other like estate sales in the LA area. Um, the photos came from a historic photo library, and Craig McNair Wilson would uh, kind of bang out the descriptive tags for each show up one of the items on his typewriter um, as they were being brainstormed by the group. There were overstuffed chairs and small tables that would give patrons kind of quiet places to sit and sip on cocktails purchased at the small upstairs bar. 
Uh, and if you were fortunate, you could sometimes get seating at one of the mezzanine's hexagonal edges and overlook the Grand Salon. Uh, perhaps by the Victorian-styled bar displaying glassware made from what appeared to be a Jungle Cruise fiberglass zebra, cut in half with a display case placed in the middle like the meat of a sandwich. <laughs> um, if you weren't quite that lucky, there was usually a spot open by one of the vintage radios that were quietly playing period music. But it kind of, I think, set the stage uh, in a very light way for what you were about to experience once you moved downstairs. And I think for today's folks who maybe haven't seen it, I think maybe Skipper Canteen is the closest thing that you could go to and see that kind of feeling of adventure and silliness, I guess you could say. Um, yeah. And, and artifacts and books and, you know, it's got a very, very similar feel to it in, in, in many ways. Yeah, I think it certainly takes a page from uh, the, the groundwork that was laid down here. Yeah. Um, although the drink menu started out kind of sedate, offering drinks available at many of the other clubs, uh, the menu eventually expanded to include more in-jokes and references to the club's members. Uh, among the best known of the club's drinks were the Kungaloosh, which was a frozen blend of Captain Morgan spiced rum, blackberry brandy, orange juice, and strawberry daiquiri mix. Uh, That's a lot in one mouthful. Let me tell you. Oh, and, and th that was actually the second Kungaloosh. There was uh, an oh. earlier recipe of the Kungaloosh, which was equally disgusting, that was made with Midori. <laughs> so oh. that that was the better version. Um, there was also the Balder Smash, which was Bacardi Big Apple, Bacardi O, Bacardi Raz, Cranberry Juice, Sour Mix, and a splash of Sprite. Now, now, how is your, uh, you know, the mixologist here, were these all just in a big vat and then they just poured it out for you or did they actually mix it right in front of you? Uh, I actually, I believe at this point they were still mixing them live. You know, the sour mix would already be ready. Um, sure, yeah. But, you know, you could grab the sour mix and, and the cranberry juice would be sitting there in a, you know, cranberry juice container. It was all, as, as we've gone through with our production with Disney. It's like the, the bars that they have are not always particularly well stocked. And these drinks are very invocative of what, you know, a typical bar had in the 90s. Um, there was the Hoopla, which Hoopla. is Bacardi, which was Bacardi Coconut, Vodka, uh, Midori Melon Liqueur, and Pineapple Juice. I just... This, this is so, like we said a couple episodes ago, one or two, whatever it was, it's so 90s sugary sweet oh, fruit God, drink. Yeah. It's, it's but it, oh, it's right it's up the alley. It's also how a lot of liquor was consumed in the era appropriate to the adventurers club. So I mean that was the the the, the era that uh slow gin fizz and th you know the way they drank back then mm. was to mix their their alcohol which was not always of a great particular heritage the, the alcohol you know you're talking bathtub gin and whatnot uh with something with sweet mixers uh with things that make made it palatable to all folks and that's where punches and things like that came from yeah um they did offer some non-alcoholic drinks too you could get uh yakus juice which was a strawberry daiquiri and pina colada mix put together and uh babylonia's brew which is pineapple and orange juice with sprite and a splash of sour mix so hmm. they love their they love their sprite and their sour mix <laughs> Uh, I, they did at some point too. also serve, um, there were, um, sort of like plastic mugs shaped like the Yukus. And, uh, there's one of a monkey head 
And uh, I know at some point I got one that was kind of shaped like a canteen. So there were, you know, it wasn't quite to the level of, you know, Jock Lindsay's and Trader Sam's with really nice collectible tiki mugs, but they had a little bit of that stuff going on. Uh, guests could enter an elevator nestled by the entrance to reach the lower level, but most walked to the far side of the mezzanine and descended via a curving staircase, perhaps stopping for a moment to enjoy the period music playing on a radio. Um, entering the salon downstairs, the true scale of the club's collection came into view. At the center, atop of a Victorian round sofa, stood a copy of the art... I'm going to say this wrong. Stood a copy of the uh, Artmesian bronze, a 5th century statue of either Zeus or Poseidon. Historians don't yet agree who it is. Um, but outfitted for fly fishing with a pole and sort of a baskety backpack. He's kind of very... seemed to be in all, these, all the pictures from the club and all the, all the videos. Um, and I, I think that set a very clear... Uh, example for the guests of what the overall tone of the club they just walked into was going to be. So like you said, it, you definitely saw that combination of like adventure and comedy kind of smashed up uh, right from the beginning. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, guests may also have picked out the samurai armor that was placed over the downstairs bar, um, wearing a diving helmet and ho holding a sword with a speared fish. Um, now, watch out if you sit at one of the elephant-hooved bar stools. Uh, the bartender uh, can uh, sometimes slowly lower them as a prank on unsuspecting patrons, which is a gag that is uh, still used today at Trader Sam's uh, on both coasts. So, you start out with the with the bar stool at the full height, and then the bartender can hit a button, and then over the course of like 20 minutes, it drops so slowly that it's almost imperceptible. Until you finally realize, like, you're down five inches compared to where you started. <laughs> that's funny. I uh, didn't know they did that. Yeah, that's a good gag. Um, perhaps your gaze was stolen by the Mongolian Yakus, a half-yak, half-mongoose, uh, I'm sorry, a half-yak, half-moose hybrid that was upholstered instead of stuffed by a Meriwether added pleasure seamstresses. Uh, the Yakus would come to life seemingly randomly during the evening and begin conversing with the crowd. Canonically, he was a cousin to the country bear jamboree's Melvin the Moose, uh, and the audio animatronic Yakus was voiced by the Comedy Warehouse's original show writer and director, um, Tom Sharman. Eventually, when Roger Cox was replaced by new show director Chris Oyen, Oyen requested that Imagineering install an off switch on the creature, uh, because he would often turn on in the middle of shows that were being performed in the salon and just interrupt things that were going on. I think in the original plan, there weren't supposed to be formal shows there. So it was cool to just have it turn on and start talking to people to try to make it a little bit more lively. Um, another large scale character was Babylonia. Um, she was a large stone head that sat atop the bathroom hallways. Um, it was essentially a giant puppet. Um, she was manipulated and voiced backstage by one of the uh, improv performers. So it wasn't a audio animatronic per se, but a puppet. And there were, turn, turns out there were like a ton of sort of mechanical or or just old school physical puppets inside of the club um and perhaps the uh the club's most famous puppet was uh colonel critchlow sushbench a mutton shopped bespeckled glee club master dressed in a 1900s era british army uniform 
with the pending of the Adventurers Club all-purpose theme song by Lynn Hart, the new member induction ceremony was moved from the mask room to the salon, where the colonel could take charge of leading a fresh batch of newly minted club members in song. Marching along, we're adventurous. Singing the song. Singing the song of adventurous directions. Up or down. Not to think they're wet. Not to think they're wet. An adventurous life is best. Big finish. An adventurous. Um, off of the main salon were several specialty rooms, uh, which each had their own mini show. In the mask room, you'd take a seat amongst dozens of masks collected from around the world. And if you looked very closely, you may have noticed that some of the ice masks, were, I'm sorry, some of the masks eyes were slowly moving back and forth. At the front of the room were Arnie and Claude, two Greek masks which came to life to talk to the audience and to each other. Um, the masks were electronic puppets puppeteered by performers on the other side of the wall, but they could see the audience uh, with a video camera. Oh, Iowa tour stock. You know, we're just not hanging around with the same class of artifacts we used to. Sure. You remember when we was in the Louvre? Oh, heck yeah. We were right next to the Mona Lisa. Oh, Dan, you should check out her Da Vinci Code. Uh. <laughs> Turns out she was a real man. Yeah, you're telling me. Not like that half-wit brown. No, wait. He doesn't hold a candle to some of the real men we've been on by. Julius Caesar. Napoleon. Catherine the Great. I was over. Right up, cowgirl. Yeah. Ah. In the treasure room, you might hear a lecture about some of the strange objects displayed along the top edge of the room's combination seats and cabinets, which somehow never included a small reproduction of a jungle cruise launch with a smoking stack named the Right Guardian. Or if you came at the right time, were introduced to Bezel the Genie, a floating head that lived inside of a large cabinet on the room's far wall. So... A person would walk over to this wooden cabinet, open the doors, and inside was this kind of floating head in a box. And it could go up and down about three, four feet in every direction inside of this cabinet. Um, it's a pretty cool effect. Um, that um, floating head effect, along with Babylonia, Artie and Claude, the Colonel, and the sinking ship bottle effect in the library, and a bunch of other props were all built by a company called Technoflex in Venice, California. So not built by Imagineering, but built by a contractor. Um, the largest performance space in the venue was the library. Um, it was about two stories tall, and the room was flanked by a large bar on one side uh, and a stage on the far end away from the entrance. And on that stage was the debris from a large pipe organ, which had crashed through the second floor balcony uh, when the structure unexpectedly gave way. And you can see little pieces of wood hanging down. Um, killed during the accident was an organist named Finger Zambini, whose spirit still haunts the club. Uh, this was more or less a direct ripoff of Irma, the piano playing ghost at Los Angeles' Magic Castle Club. Um, the idea was that Fingers still performs at the club shows. The organ was positioned in a way that guests would be able to see the keyboard keys as they would move in synchronization of the music. So there was kind of like the idea of this ghostly and invisible keyboard player that would accompany them uh, for live performances. Um, the real organist was positioned offstage with a remote keyboard and could look out of a two-way mirror to keep tabs on the show and the audience. But it, it worked. It looked really, really good. Um, the library played host to a handful of the club's most well-known shows. Uh, the Radiothon, which is a fundraiser to help the club pay its overdue mortgage. Uh, the Tales of the Adventurers Club radio broadcast, which spawned the beloved Jinkies serial commercial. 
The Balderdash Cup, which was a friendly competition between club members who would who could of who could spin the best tale of adventure. Uh, when Otis T. Wren would tell his tale of voyaging on a rough sea, uh, the ship in the bottle behind the bar would experience a storm and then eventually sink. So it was a really kind of neat effect. Um, uh, it was re uh, that effect was actually recreated from a similar one made for the Baltimore Power Plant, um, and it was later recreated again for Trader Sam's Enchanted Tiki Bar in California. And it's activated when its patrons order a shipwreck on the rocks drink. So if you ever go to Trader Sam's and you order your shipwreck on the rocks, know that that's kind of a piece of the Adventurers Club that lives on. That's one of my favorite drinks there. And it, it was taken off the Trader Sam's menu for a while. You have to ask for really? it. Really? It is. It is. Yes, it is there now. Huh. But uh, you have to ask for it. But yeah, I was very disappointed. But once you tell them, they're like, yeah, we got that. <laughs> got you covered. And Brian, you actually made a reference to this earlier. Um, the last show of the evening was the hoopla, um, which is mostly remembered due to the audience participation element. Whenever a performer said hoopla, the other cast members in the audience were encouraged to immediately answer back by saying screaming hoopla yeah, hoopla to them. That, um, that's the one I saw. Okay. And I suspect for a lot of adventures club guests, it's, probably still a hard habit to break that anytime you hear the word hoopla that you just don't want to go hoopla there's kind of like a well i remember my friend matt for the rest of that trip and for the last 20 years constantly hollering hoopla when we're when we're together hoopla like that <laughs> crazy yeah um so apologies i i know this is getting long uh but there's a lot to talk about in this club uh, the lore building was a huge part of the club's attraction, and there's not nearly enough time to talk about each one of the club's, you know, kind of actor members in detail. Um, many of them were performed by multiple actors, uh, and the original intention of the club is that, you know, a single actor might perform as many as three different characters during the course of a typical evening. Um, the most, you know, kind of visible, kind of the, the heavy hitter players of the club membership were, in no particular order... Uh, Pamela Perkins, who was the club president, Fletcher Hodges, the club curator, um, Otis T. Wren, who was a, the club treasurer and an ichnotheologist, which is a person who studies fish, um, Samantha Sterling, who was kind of the jubs, the jubs, who was the club's jungle explorer, uh, Emil Bleehall, who was a traveling junior adventurer from Sandusky, Ohio, um, Halfway Brown, the, the club aviator and ladies man. Uh, Graves, the club's butler, um, uh, French maid. There are actually several French maids, sometimes more than one at a time that work there. And uh, Madame Vlad, uh, oh, Madame Vidalia Aninsky Zarkov, who is the club gypsy. Um, now, one of my favorite characters from the first years of the club was Marcel, who is just a person wearing a gorilla mask and kind of a white dinner jacket who would walk around the club <laughs> and like, straighten things up or maybe you know deliver drinks or something and in reality that character was created as a way for performers to move from one side of the club to the other um between performances without getting noticed especially if they needed to change characters or puppeteer you know one of the other characters so they would just go backstage put on this jacket put on the mask and then they could just walk to wherever they needed to walk to without like being accosted 
So it was really funny. They, I think in the end, when they started giving people more sort of permanent roles, they ended up retiring that character. But it was just odd and funny to see, like, just a guy in a gorilla mask walking around. Um, after a couple of years, the club uh, started to develop a very passionate local following. Uh, for theme park fans who always long to be able to become more of a part of their favorite place, the Adventurers Club definitely scratched uh, that certain niche. Uh, right from the beginning, guests could pay yearly $5 dues to become an official member, and you get a plastic Adventurers Club pin, a free drink coupon, and a copy of the Adventurers Almanac, the club newsletter, in the mail. Uh, members were invited to attend members-only get-togethers, uh, and were encouraged at one point to actually bring artifacts with them to potentially donate to the club. Um, so it became quite a, quite a thing. And, and whether member or not, uh, guests were treated as if they were part of the club. Uh, Graves the butler would sometimes hand deliver written letters to random guests saying that the messages were left for them. And Todd, I think that plays well into uh, a story that you want to tell. So we were in Doctrine, I think this was 2003, and <clears throat> my brother, uh, my girlfriend at the time is now my wife. Um, we were just about to get married, and... Um, and his and my brother's girlfriend and my brother and my and his girlfriend were, were straight up blonde. So all of a sudden, at one point during the show, they picked up on their hair color and started making fun of the entire show and calling them Sven and Inga. And they were visiting from Sweden and there was this whole thing. So it was hilarious. We were absolutely on the floor laughing so hard and the joke continued. Well, we actually continued the joke into the holiday season when Christmas came around, and we had, I have a copy here, I had a, a letter written from the Adventures Club to Sven and Inga. So I'm going to read it here for you now, gentlemen. This is from the Adventures Club, Blee Hall Winkerton Academy, Exploration House, 189 Hathaway Way in Hobbitis, Kalamundi, 8J9410. So if you're looking to, to do that, so... Sven and Inga, it is with the utmost pleasure and joy that we write you this correspondence. Your recent holiday to the Adventures Club in the Central Florida region brought forth a well-needed dose of Nordic frolicking and a laughter to clue our club. Because of the cheerful glee you bestowed upon us, it is my pleasure to inform you have enclosed with its parcels a genuine piece of history direct from our treasure room. It is our gift and a way of saying thank you for your patronage. Catalogued in our collection is number 8765-309. The history of this piece is unknown, however, its record, recorded history is fascinating. The first entry in our journal places this piece in 450 BC, where it was used as a primitive sundial. The original color was thought to be the same color as it is now. Fascinating, isn't it? Moving forward in time, we find it as a symbol of primate fertility used mostly in ways unknown or in ways we do not care to be informed of. In early 1300 AD, the piece was hollowed out and used as an inkwell for the Amish monks penning the now famous Quaker Oaths. Finally, in 1936, the Adventures Club's very own Professor Otis T. Wren discovered its whereabouts in a very obscure northern location known as Mars Halls. The connection between its final discovery place and your current residence in the north make it a wonderful connection. Before I conclude this letter, I'll leave you with a list of individuals from Incan, Mozambican, and Flotatan tribes that cherish this piece during their lives. I need to take a piz, my legs are crossed, IG's afforded, and I will leave the room. I appreciate your continued support and good luck on all of your future endeavors. Keep your fjords in your trousers, and we all hope to see you again at the Adventures Club, Congaloosh, Fletcher T. Hodges, and Sunny Night. Well, so, how about that? That was, a, that was accompanied by a wonderful 
uh, gift. I'll have to find the picture of it. It, it was this this monkey holding up uh, a feathered uh, feathers coming out, and then a, a a ball covered in colored tea leaves. So it was a wonderful treasure piece that uh, we gave to him with, and. Uh, I don't think my brother got through reading this letter uh, without tears coming down his eyes laughing so hard. So, um, so yes, it was number 8675309 if you caught that one. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I wrote that letter, I tried to really play into what you know, the Adventures Club was. My brother and his girlfriend at the time were just absolutely on the floor laughing. So we had a great time. Well, well Brian, while we're on the subject of talking about locals being involved with the adventurous club i i know you have a certain perspective to this uh to share which which i feel i kind of agree with too but i'm, I'm gonna let you start and then we can all kind of weigh in on the on your thoughts the boys have heard this rant before off air that's that's what hal's <laughs> referring to but uh, my experience at the adventures club at first the immersion is great and the comparison these days to Trader Sam's is apt. So uh, if you've ever been to Trader Sam's and you come in and, and there are things going on around you all the time as people order different drinks that there's a different routine for where the, 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 the cast members have a something they call out. There's effects behind the bar and all that. that gives you a sense of some of what the Adventurers Club was about. And 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 it's a pleasurable experience for people because you go into Trader Sam's and uh, if five people order one of those, the same drink, they do the same thing for each of the, each of the five, you know, people that order it. And so you get to see it happen more than once. My experience at the Adventures Club, which was also 2003, Todd, <clears throat> uh, unless Rob corrects me, I'm almost certain it was 2003, is... We wander into this place. Uh, I, I remember asking before, well, well, what is it? And, you know, you get kind of a, well, it's like a Jungle Cruise type themed bar club thing. There's stuff that happens. It's it's a difficult thing to explain, which is why Hal's taking two hours to do it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we walked in and if I remember correctly, we were brought into the library. Um, and it was a little bit like, your first day at a new school in the middle of the school year you go in and there's just all this stuff happening and i'm surrounded by people who seem to know what's going on uh and we're like what is happening here you know there's there's people hollering stuff out and there's and and everybody it's like everybody's getting the joke except for us now there were a few other people that you could clearly see were confused being in there uh but we were i don't remember we were there long enough to get a drink uh, I remember it being really crowded for, I remember the room itself being packed with people and you're like finding a little spot to sit and then sitting at a little, like a little tiny bar table and waiting for them to bring you your drink, which took like a long time. And you're watching these things happen. And, uh, I, I really, I did not enjoy it. And, and I didn't have perspective on why or why not. I, I went in not knowing what to expect and, hearing it beforehand like if you were describing it to me now it seems like a place i would love to go however in subsequent years as i have learned about the adventurers club fandom after the fact 
and have some friends on Twitter who were regular attendees, people who lived in 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 Orlando and would go like, oh, we were there three, four nights a week. And I'm my favorite bartender and I love this routine. Well, it's like the people who do the spiel in in the Haunted Mansion. They ruin it for everybody who's yep. not in on the, you know, who's first time or don't know it by heart or only go to Disney World every eight years and don't know the routine or when you have somebody stepping on all the jokes and hollering, it, it, it ruined it. And so the very people who loved it, I think, are partially responsible for the fandom never growing beyond what it, what tiny little bit it was, because they ruined it for everybody else. That's my perspective. After the fact, figuring years later and, and, and you know, as we talk through some of these things, realizing, well, that's what I really didn't like about it. I didn't like being someplace where I felt like I wasn't in on the joke or whatever was going on because normally the person who's not in on the joke is the butt of the joke and nobody wants to go someplace for fun where you're the butt of the joke or where you're 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 you're, you're the kid sitting at the table by himself in the lunchroom and that was how that was my adventures club experience now weren't most of the jokes designed like to be like new like if you were there from out of uh, from Iowa on vacation, the, it was fun for you, the, right? The, so yeah, well, I, it all was. But my my recollection is it was a running routine. So although you could walk in at any time, they you know they let you in. It was like you had missed the part of the show that explained what was going on. Yes, and so I, these I, things were happening, and you're like, what the hell is going on here? It, that's how it was for me. Like I was you know 21 at the time at pleasure island where we you know i had the goal of like i want to see all these things because i've only seen it from the road and i was like i want to walk into every club that was here i walked in there halfway through the evening i sat on some chair that looked like it was from a thrift store and i'm like what's happening right. and nobody guided me anywhere i don't did you have a guide to take you to the library like i just sat down and i'm just I, watching all I this happen don't remember that i remember there were three there were four of us, I think, in that crew, uh, and I said, "I'm I'm remembering, you know, some of it runs together, but it it was it was one night, and I and I just remember leaving there saying I did not enjoy that, you know, and I, and over the years I've kind of played it back in my head as there's this because there is this intense fandom for it that I yeah. do not or did not understand, and I do understand it now." Uh, because there's a lot of fandoms in the theme park community that I that I don't kind of get, but I understand. And you know, over the years of being more and more in this community and making a lot of friends in it, there are things they love uh, and love to do that I'm like, all right, you enjoy yourself. I'll I'll see you afterwards. You know, like <laughs> and you can almost assimilate it to. It almost became like a Rocky Horror Picture that's Show. A, that's example. a great comparison. It's a fantastic right? comparison. I also hate because the Rocky they were practically coming. Show. Yeah, I'm not a fan either. But they practically started coming dressed up as their own characters, right? The people that, and they, you know, there's nothing worth you. Know, How big was it? How big was it? You know, what I mean, you know, it's like yeah, it doesn't even. It's, come it's like watching any, somebody's any favorite anything. comedy with them, and they do the wait, wait, you got to see this part. Here it comes, here it comes, and then they ruin it for a year. It's like you're just. It, that's what I oh, gathered. It's like funny. what's happening it, here. It, it, if there was no routine going on, it, it would have been a fascinating place. It would still be a fascinating place to go and have a drink while 
masks had eyes that were moving in this floating head like while the the effects and kind of things were happening and and all those by the way have their roots back to walt's original tiki room idea and club 33 and all the little things that 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 that, you know that it's all in the disney lineage um and and i i'm still sad that they took it away because I think it could have been reimagined without the live actors as just a really cool place to go and, and get a drink. It could have been uh, a, appetizers and drinks or something, right. you know, like a restaurant. Yeah, and I think if it stayed more in the improv and, and not had that predictable path. Um, but then again, you got to, you know, improv's tough, right? Keep that up 24 hours I, a day. I just recall walking in there, Brian, I don't know if you did the same. I went to each room and I looked like Oh, I'm sorry. I've interrupted your show. Let me go to the next one. And then I went to the next. <laughs> I peek around the corner, and I'm like, you know, like my cutoff T-shirt at like 21. Like, whoa! I'm sorry. Excuse uh, it's like me. Going to a funeral parlor that has the right side and the left side, two different yes. funerals, and you walk into the wrong one. Like, oh, I'm sorry. Right, right. Is this not the, the right? Johnson yeah. party? Yeah. Like, I didn't pay for this. Am I in the yeah. wrong area? Because you guys clearly are into something, and I'm going to yes. go back to the BET <laughs> club. You know? Yeah. Like it was crazy. So it's, you know, and I, and I don't want anybody to like, I, but listen, I don't take anything away from the people who loved it. The people who immersed themselves in it. Uh, you, I'm just saying you ruined it for me. Thanks. Well, well that, and you know, you, you very well might've enjoyed it. I might've enjoyed it if I started and ended my whole night there. Like you well, could have seen and, the whole thing. And that's what these people did. Like sure. these, these, these Uber fans, like they, they were there for the start at eight o'clock or whatever. And they, you know, they were there to the last, the last hoopla. Well, yep. and I yep. think you're dead on right because I know the first time that I went, I mean, I think we walked in sometime around nine o'clock and, you know, you see the card and, oh, there's all this stuff that you don't know what it is or who it is or what's going on or what's a mask room, what's a library, how do you get to the library, where you just have all these questions. You, you go in and sometimes you just sat there and like nothing was going on because there was a show in progress somewhere. So then you're like, well, what's the big deal? Like I not sure what's happening here and you're just confused because it's a a new experience you know you go you go into the comedy warehouse it's like you sit down at a table someone like this is something that you've experienced many times in your life there's an order to it and a cadence that makes sense and in in disney then and now most places where there is a shtick there's an orientation room now whether that's the the stretching room at the haunted mansion or uh, you know, you can probably think of other examples faster than I can, but but really, whenever you walk in some place, these themed restaurants, there's there's always like a pitch, a spiel where they somebody's telling you, hey, kind of here's what's going on, or here's the lay of the land, and that wasn't the case there. That is a very valid point, and you know what? Something like that probably would have been a huge help. I, I mean, for a, a 30, a one minute, you know, the Tower of Terror, they, the, the ride yeah. is all set by that one minute that you spend in the room with fake Rod Serling, you know, telling, right. telling and you, you get it. You just know where you're right, going, right? Right. That gives you the story in, in, in a minute. Hey, here's what's going on. And, and, a, and a room just like that, where they were taking in 10 or 15 people at a time to then let into the bar would have really enhanced the place. That is a fascinating. Yeah, I think you're dead right. I think you're absolutely right. That's no, too late now. That's yeah. Well, we can open our own. <laughs> there you go. There we go. There you go. Oddly enough, somebody did do that in in the really? 1990s. There was a very uh, adventurers club. I mean, I don't want to say it's stolen because it wasn't, but it was basically stolen. A place called the Jekyll and Hyde in New York. 
uh, except it was kind of like monster movie themed instead okay. of Adventurers Club, but it was very much cut from the same cloth that Adventurers Club with live performers and dinner and drinks. And I, I got to go to it one time on a business trip. Um, lines around the block, it was huge. Uh, and it was actually done by a guy that was a stockbroker that was a huge Adventurers Club fan that was like, this would really go over New York City. Let's steal it. <laughs> no kidding. It, it, it lasted for a while. Um, lasted longer yeah. than David Copperfield's restaurant, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, he made it disappear. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it, it was an amazing trick. It still hasn't been found. It probably took me about three visits to finally get kind of what was going on there. Right. Now, as you know, mo- the, 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 Dis- <laughs> the Disney theme parks and areas, including Pleasure Island, are not intended to be designed for people who have to go three or four visits to get something. It's, most of them, it's one night of their vacation they're spending there. And that's what we talked about in the first two Pleasure Island episodes, that there were two masters here. There's the vacationer, the conventioner, the people there for a week that might never come back. And then there's this second group, which was really the first time they were catering to them, which are the locals, the cast members, the people who will go to this thing regularly as as if they're going to their local mall. That's true. Um, I think one of the the reasons that maybe the club is as loved as it was is really besides, you know, the funny stuff. uh, There was actually a real spirit to the club that was about inclusion and belonging and, you know, reaching out to people who did get it and kind of trying to pull them in. Um, you know, the club's creed, which was, you know, canonically written by Mary, we- Mary Weather Adam Pleasure says, we climb the highest mountains just to get a better view. We plumb the deepest oceans because we're daring through and through. We cross the scorching deserts, martini in our hands. We ski the polar ice caps in tuxedos looking grand. We are reckless, brave and loyal and valiant to the end. If you come here as a stranger, you will exit as a friend. And that was really what they were going for. I have a vague recollection of that being recited when I was there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if that was a thing that they did, but I feel like there was a group led like pledge of allegiance type did, thing didn't like we that. do that at d23 yes. too that one time that's what we did yes, yes that's what i'm remembering now everybody's standing up at the yeah, d23 yeah. uh event and doing it that's it brian maybe did we, not maybe leave we did, maybe we did it in the in the adventures club too you didn't leave remember. as a friend at the adventures club you left uh, angry no I'm, listen they were friends they were just friends i would rather meet for dinner somewhere else <laughs> so the Adventures Club, along with the other clubs on Pleasure Island, closed on September 27th, 2008. It'll be fondly remembered by those who experienced it, and perhaps even more fondly remembered by those who never got the chance to. It's crazy to me that, it, you know, that there's a lot of stuff like this, that it was open for years where I was going so frequently, and I just never, like, I just never went. Uh, it's it's got the, It's got the same... F- same following as horizons right yeah reopen it bring it back but then the, yeah. when you when you go back how often do you actually go how often did you ride horizons well you know i think the problem with this is, is exactly if you didn't have it with what brian said and it was still there today the problem would only be exacerbated with people you know the, 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 the vloggers today and all that it just it, it wouldn't be what you're thinking it would be well, that's you true know. of a, anything that's that's got this anything, kind of, yeah. I don't want to say secret to it, but but it's got a certain twist that 
if you are able to experience it before you go, it kind of ruins it. And there was no YouTube yeah. in 2003 that, that, that would, you know, where you would watch the videos of it or anything beforehand. Um, so, it, you know, it was, you're, and you're, it may have, you know, I'm sure there was, a, there was an element to it where they intended it to be a bit disorienting. Uh, but that got exacerbated over the years by people who were not disoriented in there. Uh, and the impact that that had on disoriented people like myself. Yeah, Pleasure Island to me was a... You, you, I didn't hear much about it because we weren't of age. Saw a little bit of it on resort TV as you got there. You saw it from wherever, like you weren't allowed to go in there. So it was something you really almost drew you drew us in. Like, oh, what is right. this? We've seen it all these years. Let's go finally check it out. And then you explore it and this and that. It wasn't like I could watch pictures, videos, all that on the internet before I went there. Yeah, and today you could do that at Disney Springs, and nobody probably yeah, does. Yeah, and, and really all of Pleasure Island is that for me. I, I regret now not spending time kind of just walking through the places and getting a drink in each one. And But like I said, we used to, I mean, we would go to the parks. We'd be just spent by the end of the day. The, we were not big drinkers. The last thing I wanted to do was go into this, like, crazy party zone, which is what it was, you know, uh, and... You know, well, let's extend the evening by three more hours uh, running around in a place <laughs> that we really don't want to be. Right. And it's hot and sweaty usually in the summertime. Yes. And, yeah. Or when well, we were there, I used to go at low crowd times. The place would be like dead there. You know, somebody would be playing on the West End stage to like eight people. And which is <laughs> which is a whole other vibe. Uh, but, you know, it's it's eh, R.I.P. Pleasure Island. Yeah, well, I, I will close this with uh, the club's motto and official toast. Some days you eat the bear, some days the bear eats you, but always dress for the hunt. <laughs> Kungaloosh, gentlemen. There we Kungaloosh. go. Kungaloosh. Kungaloosh. All righty. Well, with that, um, how do you have any uh, new new design ideas? Are you are you doing adventures? We're, we're doing gonna, a t-shirt? Actually, we're going to do, I'm, I'm ready to release a couple of Pleasure Island themed shirts into our... Perfect. Into our store, so everybody be on the lookout for that. Is there anything with test Excellent. tube shots or anything? <laughs> for you, yes. No, we'll no, I don't want to. There we go. We'll get one. We know why you went, JT. That's right. We, we, we should fill this you know, in. You for you, in. I will do like a test track themed shirt, except that it says test tubes. <laughs> and Scott. There you go. That's very clever. Test tube, test track, <laughs> test tube track. It's around the same era. I mean, that's, oh. that's their class. Yeah, test yeah, track came out in, what, 99? The test tubes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. There we go. So, all right. Well, if you are interested in helping us out and supporting us as always, you can head over to retrowdw.com forward slash support us. And that's where you can get all of Howe's t-shirt designs and, and uh, phone cases and all that great stuff, stickers and whatnot. And uh, if you prefer, uh, as well, we always accept monetary donations to the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. You can get that at lbv lbvhhistory.org forward slash donate. And uh, this entire show and everything we do is sponsored by everybody out there listening and those that are making donations. So we really appreciate uh, every penny that you send in. It keeps us going. Uh, and with that, uh, we are, gentlemen, going back to an attraction next month. Um, I'm excited for this one. It's been one of those ones I've waited for for a while. But we are going to the Monster Sound Show. And as well as we're going to talk a little bit about um, the evolution of that. And I loved absolutely loved the pre-show one of the best pre-shows i think ever to keep your your interest this was in the era of um 27 inch tv suspended over your head by cables <laughs> so we'll talk about dave letterman's uh 
him and, and one of the well-known Foley artists. And uh, provided we, we don't dive in, just like, remember, we were going to do Magic Journeys and Imageworks, and it turned into just Magic Journeys. I'm hoping to do Drew Carey and Sounds Dangerous, but uh, we're going to see where this where this goes. So JT and I have a lot of uh, digging up and work to do if, to, to if write we have, this next episode. If we have it my way, I'm going to say that we can't do an episode only on Drew Carey Sounds Dangerous. That's just... We could if we interviewed Drew Carey. Yes, that's the only that's way. Right. I will not remember taping it. It'll be, it'll be like Eric <laughs> Idle being asked about the film. It'll be like, I did that one afternoon. I read my script. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't even remember it. Right. What's well, a fake something? Yeah. <laughs> so, so yes, we are dipping our toes back into the Disney MGM studios. I can't wait. And, and although Todd, uh, it's I, th- gonna be- I think you always have to say it. Monster Sound Show. Sound Show. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, I went a little too deep on it, but I was I was doing the you know the monster. Yeah. So. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll have to we'll, we'll set ourselves into complete silence and and we'll point at each other. You guys won't be able to see it, but you'll see what we're getting at. And how uh, do you think uh, maybe for next month you could do some foley artistry for us? Do you think maybe if we all kind of came up with some different sound effects, we could we could do our own monster sound show? What do you think? I'll be a regular Jimmy McDonald, sir. Hang on. Now Brian's trying. Easy. Yeah. <laughs> Don't, you know, Brian's... <laughs> we can all pass out here. <laughs> all right, well, gentlemen, thank you very much, as always. Uh, look forward to talking to you on episode 70, Monster Sound Show. All right, with that, thanks for listening. We'll be back next month. Brian, take us out. Follow the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society on Twitter and Instagram at LBV History and on the web at lbvhistory.org. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at retrowdw.com and on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at retrowdw. And follow our hosts, Todd McCartney, on Twitter at wdwms, Hal Bowers on Twitter and Instagram at goawaygreen. JT Couser on Twitter at LS1JT and on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brian P. Miles. Retro Disney World is the monthly podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society, a nonpartisan, nonprofit, tax-exempt, 501c3 organization and is not affiliated in any way with the Walt Disney Corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities. Hoopla!